Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Democracy-ish. I'm Torre. And I'm Danielle Moody-Mill. This is a special episode of Democracy-ish. Danielle and I are sitting here with Brandon Dean, someone I recently met on Twitter. He was the youngest black mayor of an American city, Brighton, Alabama, which has 3,000 people, and a significant crack and heroin problem that he had to deal with. As soon as he became mayor, he is currently running for Senate in Pennsylvania, where he has never lived. We're going to get into that. His number one issue is reparations, but also an incredibly important issue to him is homelessness in America, partly because he himself is homeless and not yet sure where you're going to stay tonight. So a plethora of issues. I want to talk, I think, about reparations and why that is the number one issue for you in your building Senate campaign. You want to be Pennsylvania's senator in 2022, you're challenging Pat Toomey, and reparations is your number one issue. Why? Uh, thank you, Torrey. Everything that you said respects the true nature of why I have engaged in public life, public service, and electoral politics. Uh, it's true. I was the youngest African-American mayor in the United States when I was elected at I believe 24 years old to serve not only my hometown, but the city where my grandfather grew up, my father grew up, and my great-grandfather moved after migrating from Colcita, Georgia in his youth with a third-grade education to buy property and start a family. The United States Senate, if it was not evident to the average American who happens not to be engaged with the conduct of the legislature on a daily basis, the United States Senate came into the view of all the American people recently when we had to wait to see what their judgment would be in the impeachment trial. And I think that most Americans saw a body that was designed, that is by design, supposed to be able to have heightened access to information Mm -hmm. and conduct themselves with a greater degree of deliberation Mm -hmm. than any legislative body in the world, including the United States Congress. And I think the American people felt that many of our elected representatives there failed at that duty. Mm -hmm. The Congress describes, Maxine Waters said this, Congress decides what high crimes and misdemeanors are. The Congress decides what's an impeachable offense. The Congress decides based on precedent 
even if it is in the best interest of the American people to proceed forward with the question of impeachment. And we look at the history of the presidency. There are very few instances of which the conduct of the person holding that office, the conduct of people associated directly with the person holding that office would not suggest very firmly that action needed to be taken to censor the power that this person had. But realistically, we know that in the context of us and our aspirations of being the most democratic, the most fair, the most inclusive society, that this man should not be our president. Mm -mm. And no Mm -hmm. one like him should ever be able to be our president. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this came into the view of the American people. I had already been imagining that it would be important to get to the United States Senate because, you know, in 2022, we'll be coming upon the 10-year anniversary of the shooting death, the assassination of Trayvon Martin. And we do not have voices in the United States. And sure, we have three Mm African-Americans, but let's just be very clear that as it is with any culture, there are levels, there are dynamics that influence the truths that we hold as individuals. And we do not have anyone in the United States Senate. And we have not had in this century and we have not had in a generation anyone in the United States Senate who can give voice to the reality of people who grow up in the same experience under the same surveillance and under the same threat to life that Trayvon Martin himself ultimately succumbed to. But even in the state which I have decided to make my new home, Antoine Rose, another victim of -hmm. police brutality, it was important to me in deciding that I would move forward with this now. And let me just be very clear, and I'm unapologetic about it. It has been a lifelong ambition for me to see myself having influence in a space as grand, as important, as essential to the preservation of democracy and our high ideals of democracy as the United States Senate. It wasn't Trump that inspired me to want to do it. It wasn't his impeachment trial that inspired me to do it. It was only that that confirmed for me that it was necessary to do. And so I'm approaching this understanding that there has not been a voice like mine. There has not been an experience that I have retrieved through DNA like my great-grandfather who migrated from Colcita, Georgia to start a family working the steel mill, who said after purchasing property, his own property, which, you know, in the era of Jim Crow, 1959. (laughs) And having agency and enterprise to raise livestock, to do some farming. The legacy of a man like that who stood in his yard as a white property owner that was known in our city to have a lot of power with the police and the city jail wanted to cross through. And of course, that could have been a mechanism for trying to see if that was a daughter that my great grandfather had that he might be interested in or just trying to keep tabs on the activity Mm -hmm. of his home in trying to intrude on my grandfather's property. My great grandfather, I'm sorry, interrupted him, stopped him and, and declined his attempt. And he threatened my great grandfather in saying that, you know, the Klan would be back to burn down his house. And my great grandfather said, you know, 1959 again. I think this was some time before the lynching of Emmett Till. He said, sir, I don't know who you are and I don't know what Klansmen you know, but if any of them come here tonight, they will be coming to drag your dead ass out of my yard. And there has not been a voice. There has not been a sense of self-awareness and confidence in what we are and what we are entitled to be in this country that has been amplified or even allowed in the United States Senate, 1,984 women, men, whether they were straight, whether they were Greek, whether they were Jewish, whether they were Roman Catholic, have been members of the United States Senate. Only 10 of them to date have been black. And two come to mind immediately. You just think about the construct 
the disallowance of us in that space. Two of them, Roland Burris in recent history, who was appointed by recently <laughs> pardoned Rob Bogloyevich, was appointed to replace Barack Obama mm. after having held, I think, two or three constitutional offices in the state of Illinois. And the first, Hiram Rhodes Revel, who was from Fayetteville, North Carolina, I believe living in Ohio at this particular time as a minister, was actively recruited by the Mississippi legislature to represent them. Because in those days, in post-Reconstruction, mm -hmm. the state legislators voted and appointed U.S. senators. So wait, so go into why is reparations your main issue? And talk a little bit about how it is that you as a lifelong generational, is it Alabamian? Yeah. You strategically looked at the map mm. and the comings and goings mm. or potential comings and goings of the senators and the population sizes and black folks and decided, I'm going to run for office in Pennsylvania. Well, let's be very clear. I am a humanitarian by nature. Um, I believe in family and I believe that the family is not just those people that you raise and segregated to a bedroom in your home. I mean, I believe that if we can come into communion, we are all family as a people. We share a blood and a bond in that sense. And so my idea of reparations for myself, because mm -hmm. we can't imagine this idea, this policy of reparations without as black people recognizing what it would also do for us on the individual microscopic level. And for me, my reparations is not that I want a Maserati or, or that I even want to own a luxury apartment building. But let me be very clear. My protest, my living protest of saying I should be in the United States Senate. I should be one of a hundred voices to determine the direction if this democracy will survive the direction of this country for the next 250 years. That is my form of reparation. That is for me personally, but also for all those people who will be moved to believe that the Senate matters, that their highest and most deliberative body has a context in the modern time, especially when you have people in the journalist space who are beginning to question the relevance of such an institution that could look away from the atrocity of an administration like this, who could object to the appointment of a Supreme Court justice made fairly and honorably by a duly elected president and yet send two Supreme Court justices appointed by a president who the majority of Americans voted against. Mm -hmm. I think that we know that it has always been our responsibility from the time that we were delegated roles in the master's house to clean up the mess, to correct the error and the failures that have occurred in a chronic fashion time and time again at the hand of those who have served as but our oppressors. that to me sounds, and it's extraordinary. You're actually restoring some faith that, well, a lot of faith, everybody knows that listens to Democracy-ish knows that mine is always on the teetering edge in mm -hmm. government. But you're restoring my faith in a way that makes me believe that there are still people like yourself that are out there that believe that joining an institution that was never built to actually work for us is something that we can still change and create into something different from the inside out. The question about reparations, I think, though, is an interesting one when you form it in the context of you seeing the Senate as your reparations, because to me, reparations is something that is just due, not something that I have to be voted in for, right? It is just due based on the work and the funds and the resources that have been stolen for generations mm -hmm. that are just due. And to me, if the Senate were to be considered to be reparations, then 13% of the Senate would be black. Then it would well, be, it would be 
equal to the representation of black people demographically well, in this me, country. Let me be clear that I, that it is a part of the intention. I don't believe that we will get a suitable reparations package approved in the United States Senate without increasing in real near time the number of African-Americans in the body. Mm -hmm. And we still have a two-party structure, Democrat and Republican, that are very much so convinced, or at least willing to convey that they are convinced, that black people mm -hmm. cannot win statewide. So there is a charge in me making this provocation without their money, without their endorsement, without their good faith, that if it's relevant for you to promote this person to be a spokesperson on your national platform, if it's relevant for you to acknowledge their research and their policy in discussions about a particular issue, then it is also relevant for you to send some of those people to the United States Senate. That and the United States Supreme Court are the only place where black people have a heightened limited access. And it is somewhat ironic. It's also the place where we have observed the greatest failure of democracy in recent history. I mean, you don't lie. So how did you Because it is because it is certainly the greatest failure. From the New Yorker staff writer Vincent Cunningham, a keenly observed novel of a young black man searching for his place in the world amidst a moment of historic change. Great Expectations is about David's 18 months working for the senator's presidential campaign. Along the way, David meets a myriad of people who raise a set of questions. Questions of history, art, race, religion, and fatherhood that force David to look at his own life anew and come to terms with his identity as a young black man and father in America. Inspired by the author's experiences working on Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, Cunningham uses a political campaign as his narrative backbone. Great Expectations will be one of the talked about novels of the year, Colin McCann. Great Expectations is available wherever books are sold. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from Mac Blue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. show is part of the pro-democracy podcast coalition the midterms are coming and it's more important than ever that we protect and fix our elections we all know that our government is broken politicians spend more time working for themselves their big donors and their political party instead of for us we as americans have had enough of the corruption partisan bickering and gridlock look i get that all the nonsense makes you want to tune out but i'm here to tell you there's reason for hope our political system is broken now but we can fix it that's why we've partnered with Represent Us. 
a nonpartisan grassroots organization that has helped notch more than 160 victories to improve our elections and give power back to the voters where it belongs. Right now, until November, there are many, many ways you can get involved. Represent Us is working in cities and states to pass good government policies like ranked choice voting. And they're also recruiting folks to help staff the polls. Let's protect our elections now and for generations to come. Visit represent.us slash pod to learn more. That's represent.us slash pod. How did you come <laughs> to deciding to run in Pennsylvania? Why not run in Alabama, where you're generationally from? I fell into homelessness after being ejected from my mayorship, being given sort of a false option to run in a second election when I had duly won the initial election with the overwhelming support of the citizens and many disenfranchised voters, 52% in a five-way race in which I was running against a former mayor, a current mayor, a council person. And I had only been home for, I think, 22 months. Because you went to Howard. And I joined a union out of state. So I fell into homelessness. Every sense of security that I had for myself was ripped from under me. I mean, my car, my home outside of Alabama, which I use as a base of operation for my professional work, doing auditing and union organizing. That's all of that. And, well, I had time. I had time to begin writing a memoir, mm-hmm. and I had time to travel the country. I mean, the first place I went was Puerto Rico. I'd never been to Puerto Rico before. And embarrassingly to admit, I'd actually never been across the ocean. There in Puerto Rico, a sense fell upon me that I was in a very tragic and unfortunate moment and that I was either going to resolve to overcome it by exhibiting an extraordinary resilience and doing things that made me uncomfortable, even frightened me, or I was going to be defeated. And I was going to sort of cycle in this depression and anxiety that was real and overwhelming. Because I want to be very clear that I may sound calm and I may have this equilibrium and humor about me, but there was, and still are moments in time where my, I fear for my life mm-hmm. because of the way in which I challenged the system the context of the challenges that I presented on a level of their depth and breadth, the people who felt isolated by my petitions. When we talked about marijuana decriminalization, when we talked about prison reform. And so I went from Puerto Rico back through the South, Georgia. In that time period, we had the election for Florida and Georgia governor Mm -hmm. and the election of a mayor in Atlanta, which ran very close 700 vote difference between a black Atlanta native and a white upper middle class woman who lived in the most affluent neighborhood of mm. Atlanta in the height of a gentrification movement on the heels of a black mayor, Howard alumni, and just seeing these patterns and what was really happening in terms of data and trends and electability, that being one factor. But when I looked at the strength of the black electorate in states like Florida, states like Georgia, states like Alabama, states like Maryland, D.C., which has a shadow senatorship, which, oh, yeah. which does not have a vote oh, or yeah, a voice in the body, ironically, also being the state with the largest black population. Mm-hmm. Isn't it ironic? Yes, though? yes. Mm-hmm. But at this point in time, neither of those shadow senators is black. Realistically, I even looked at California where I thought that the person I wanted to become president would leave a vacant seat open in 2022. Her colleague is close to seemingly close to retiring. So I thought that would be two opportunities. I went out there, spent time there. And basically, I resolved that the history of Pennsylvania, which basically represented a gateway to freedom for slaves in the day of Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass, everything beyond that were places where, you know, black folks could be Mm -hmm. and live 
and largely be unaffected by the uh, brutality of police segregation or the violence of the of South. Crow, South yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, I, the, the North was always seen not to be, it's not absent of racism, it's not absent of criminalization of blackness, but I think that the bloody history yeah. of Jim Crow yeah. is what forced many black Americans to flee, to flee to a place that was going to be less violent, wasn't going to be absent of violence, yeah. but it was going to be the idea that, you know, if I send my son to the store, that they weren't going to get lynched in the middle of the night, beaten to death and hung in the torturous activities of the Klan there. So to me, the reasoning behind a lot of your movements are so strategic and so well thought out. How do you think, given your current state of dwelling, yeah, right, yeah, in terms yeah. of homelessness, which, you know, the absence of government agencies and funding to actually help the homeless, which has under this current administration been sliced and diced, and you can see that. You were sharing with us photos of homeless people all in Washington, D.C. I lived in Washington, D.C. for over 15 years. And I can tell you that since I have been back under the Trump administration for different events, that I notice the homelessness, the rise of it is something that's extraordinary. You go to places like San Francisco, it's almost crippling. How do you expect in your current state of dwelling to be able to tackle something that in a stable positioning is almost insurmountable. What are the tactics that you're going to use to be able to do that in the current place? Well, the advantage that I have is that I can certainly personalize this fight in a way that, for one, I think, you know, Pete Buttigieg said in a recent Democratic debate, you know, how ironic that we've got seven white people on this stage talking about racial injustice. And for me, that question should never, and for all practical purposes, could never come up. I'm living in the experience and have real proximity to the experience of people who in this country feel that something has got to give. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's got to give right now. And they ain't all black. They just happen to have proximity to blackness. They happen to have a an experience with poverty that only is akin to what ours has been generationally in, mm -hmm. in the makeup of this corporation that we call a democracy. And it also requires, because I look at it as a mode of survival, but see, I've been outside of wanting, you know, let's say, let's just use that fruitless term, wanting to be a United States citizen. Mm -hmm. Outside of that ambition, I have pursued other career options, other means to stabilize my life. And they have largely rejected me based on the nature of my tone, based on my history in public life, and what they don't believe I will concede in terms of values to contribute to the functions of their organization. And so I don't have many other options except maybe preparing an eight-year plan to raise money to run for the presidency. And so I have to devote myself to something if I intend to not only survive, but to overcome. How does being homeless affect you on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of your political mm -hmm. thoughts and ambitions? You talked about sometimes sleeping in your car. You talked about sometimes staying with somebody who you don't know how long they can stay. Most people who run for office are millionaires and can spend that six to 12 months dedicating to run for office mm -hmm. because they don't need to work. Let me be very clear about that perception of people in public office who appear to come 
with the advantage of self-sufficiency. Few people come to the Congress as millionaires. Few people come to the Congress with a pot to piss in. The reality of it is the nature of how politics is corrupted and infused by dirty money gives an advantage to people who sign up for these high offices who will say in sometimes direct or indirect terms that I'm willing to engage you or allow you to engage me at a level where you make demands about what I will do in the conduct of my office in exchange for. You are looking at a black man, a young, poor, broke black man. In hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from Mac Blue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities. Healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country. Immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun. And candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns need of all with student loan debt where i just sent a letter to equifax mm -hmm. <laughs> yesterday saying i need these items <laughs> removed from not that i'm not responsible for but what am i gonna do you talking about a young black man who has had that same opportunity i was a, the youngest black man in the country of course people called me and said well you know we want to help you but we need this and what this was was not always aligned with the best interest of my people and mm. therefore i'm not a millionaire therefore mm -hmm. i'm not a thousandaire Therefore, I didn't have some cushy nonprofit position where I could show up two days a week and still expect a deposit of four or five thousand dollars every two weeks in my so, in my bank. So having been mayor, you could have easily gotten any of these things. It was the easiest thing in the world. If you want, if, to, if you want to concede, if you want principle. to concede your principles, if you want to be absent of integrity for you, yeah. that was. I will take this decision, which is hard, right? Which I can imagine is an absolute struggle on a day-to-day -day basis. But you would rather do that than compromise your principles. My grandmother was a maid. The first job she took, she made $5 a day working in what was equivalent to a mini mansion in the 1950s. She was taking care of three babies. She had a son of her own. She was cleaning the house and she was preparing all of the holiday meals for this particular Jewish family, Yom Kippur, Rahashan, all of that. And she dressed me for Easter. She uh, took me to church or at least insisted that I go. And one thing that was never absent in our household, despite our disagreements around certain cultural ideas, was integrity. Mm -hmm. And so I laugh because, you know, sometimes people will say, well, it wasn't enough. What they had to offer, often it was insulting when you consider what the human capital toll would be. But also, it was never a consideration. Mm. I ran for public office to 
be an example of doing the right thing and helping people be able to make upright decisions and achieve uprightness in the world. I didn't get dope dealer votes because I promised them they'd be able to sell more dope. I incentivized them to imagine me as a partner to help them find a new means to thrive, mm -hmm. but make a positive contribution that to their community. And so when people who I didn't even know who wasn't on the court shooting with me, was in the gym shooting with me, came to me with nefarious, suggestive offers about what I could do in exchange for some theory of an advantage that would only serve me temporarily. Mm. The answer was always no. It was not even a consider. It wasn't, well, will anybody know? It was no. <laughs> it was not going to happen. Not with me. I have been able to achieve quite a lot in my life by maintaining my integrity. I also recognize that as a black man in obvious black skin, that there's clearly a notion, a preconceived notion of criminality already mm -hmm. attached to you when people don't know who you are. And even that paranoia remains with even some of your allies just because you are black and just because of how you travel through the world. And that alone was enough to let me know that I shouldn't play that game. I had forewarnings. I had the experience of Kwame Kilpatrick, Larry Langford, Sheila Dixon, Marion Barry, who for the least of their lapses in judgment were reduced to punchlines and to marginalized points in the history of black politics. And Based I on the decisions that they made. Yeah. You know, arguably so. But I do think that we have to evaluate some of those people in the context of the moment in time that they were trying to amass leadership and control and authority. Mm -hmm. And have I ever used a control substance? No. Would I encourage people to experiment with cocaine if that's what they allege that, you know, our friend Marion was engaged in in the very infamous oh, yeah. tape that, oh, I, that was later on revealed? My God. But do people appreciate the extraordinary pressure? Do people appreciate the extraordinary pressure of being a black man in a role like that, with proximity to the White House, to the Congress, to the world powers, and it really experimenting and traveling and holding in your heart principally that you want to serve your people, you want to uplift your people. Do people really appreciate the responsibility that we have when we get these roles without a blueprint and without a whole lot of allies, especially if you're trying to work for your people? Because people get ghosts when they realize, oh, she black and she for black people. Oh, he black and he really going to serve other black people and lift up the poor. He ain't just in this for show and pomp and circumstance. And so I don't justify criminality or justify improper behavior. In fact, I believe we're held to a higher standard of conduct. Of course. But I've had interface with these people. And I can say that history has not been kind. Larry Lankford, the most progressive black mayor that Birmingham, Alabama had, accepted about $250,000 in improper gifts in the form of clothing, trips, and I believe credit lines from persons that he believed to be his friends. He went to jail and he spent the last 10 years of his life in a prison. Mm -hmm. Bull Connor was responsible for raiding the houses of civil rights leaders, beating the shit out of Fred Shuttlesworth, overlooking the investigation that involved the individuals that bombed the 16th Street Baptist Church, didn't serve a day in jail. Of course not. And retired from Alabama politics. Mm -hmm. On the people's pension, I'm sure. 
so, on a pension that's paid for by the people that he incarcerated and beat the shit out of. I'm sure that that's absolutely the case. I think that money in politics is something that is not new, but I think that your take on it in terms of how black politicians have been demonized for things that we know good goddamn well that white politicians have done and have been doing and continue to do and are doing right now in the White House as we speak, get away with. But they have access to more sophisticated channels sure. to be able to execute those crimes. And so it goes largely unseen. I don't want to get into, but look at the number of not just Trump. You know, now it's a big deal because apparently Trump invented racism. <laughs> you, you know, I, people don't like to talk about that, but yeah, but it was but, here before him. It, yeah. I had no idea. And, and everybody wants to be uncomfortable and imagine it. And I don't buy into it. And I take it as a very insincere notion when liberals, particularly those liberals who are not in black skin or close to the black experience, talk about Trump as though he represents some anomaly of what we've been already experiencing in mm. this country in terms right. of disenfranchisement. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's given voice, visibility, and a package to it. But the reality of it is liberals, the Democratic Party, endorse the same type of behavior on another level and have done so for a long time. You all decide who you want to support. You all are selective about black people to put in front of the American people that you decide you will move forward to a platform to achieve electability and donorship. And everybody else, you annihilate, you isolate, and you minimize. That's our Democratic Party. If that were not so, the youngest black mayor in the country, African-American mayor in the country, would not have fallen into homelessness, would not have tried to travel through that experience in isolation, on food stamps, on cash app. Hmm. I think that uh, you're an extraordinary person who is on an extraordinary life journey. And I hope that the future is rewarding for you if it is in the U.S. Senate or if it is somewhere else. I hope you can continue to make a really important positive judgment for America. And I think it's actually also extraordinary, and we should mention, that as fascinating and as powerful as you are, you are Danielle's second favorite being in the room. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That she has completely fallen in love with your little dog. I have fallen in love with the dog, folks, and I don't like dogs. This one is (laughs) tiny and brown. American Cocker Spaniel. American Cocker Spaniel. That's adorable. Named Shay Shay. Shay Shay, who in my head is called Chocolate Drop. (laughs) (laughs) And Danielle loves her so much, but um, we support you. And we thank you. Thank you. We appreciate the person that you are trying to be when we know that there is all kind of pressure on either side to give up your principles. And you have maintained. And Godspeed to you heretofore. Imagination, dedication, and reparations. Come on. That's where we going. So thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much.